Greetings, friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to the Extra Milestone, your weekly cinemaholic spinoff where we take a trip to the past to discover the classic and important films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am Sam Noland, your host as always, a staff writer for Cinemaholics, and just an all-around guy who refuses to leave this podcast feed. And with me, I have a guest that I am always incredibly excited to be with. It is... The one, the only, Julia Tatey. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about the movie that we are going to talk about today. You are one of my favorite guests to have on The Extra Milestone. I always learn something, and I think today is going to be the case as well. I can't wait. Let's dive right into it. We're going to dive right in. So so a couple of weeks ago, uh, Julia and Will Ashton and I did a podcast about All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, which I had a ton of fun on. I think that was that turned out really well. And afterwards, I said, hey, Julia... What do you say uh, you come back on the show sometime soon? And of course, how could you resist, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> what else would I be doing on a Wednesday night? I, there, are, there are only a couple of things. It's, it's uh, and do a podcast with your old pal Sam is one of them. So <laughs> Definitely. I'm glad that, uh, that we decided to do so. And so I started, I listed off a few titles that would be eligible for uh, this month, we're currently celebrating the month of May, even though it's now the beginning of August. I know we're trying. And uh, I mentioned this one movie and the, before I could even finish the title, which is actually saying something because it's a very long title. Uh, Julia, I could just if I couldn't see her face, but I could hear it light up and say, yes, that one. And that movie <laughs> was and i'm going to say the whole title just this once and then i think from now on we're just going to refer to it by the shorter title it is jean dielman 23 kaidu kames 1080 Bruxelles. that's close i mean we can work on the french language with the numbers <laughs> Vantois, you know we can get to Vantois. the 1080 at some point but yeah yeah i appreciate the effort on that I actually should have looked up how to say 1080 in France. Uh, in French, I mean, uh, so forgive me for that. But yes, that it's a very long title. Um, it is uh, directed by Chantal Ackerman, uh, one of my very favorite directors in the entire world. Uh, Julia, I want to ask you right off the bat, what is uh, what is your connection to Chantal Ackerman as a director? Like, how did you come to discover her, and what has been your journey with her thus far? Well, I think like. Some people who may not be um, as devoted or or have kind of fallen into um, art house cinema or cinema that was created during the latter half of the 20th century. I actually was introduced to Chantal Ackerman when I was at school and when I was studying at university. She is one of the most formidable voices in this wave modern wave, art house wave of cinema, and especially the way with Jean Dielman in which she puts a focus on domesticity, on this one woman's life, on these ideas of control in a post-World War II era. She's such a fascinating, fascinating filmmaker to come across. She also wrote Jean Dielman as well. And the fact that she brought in all of these female creatives, all these women to be a part of her film crew as they studied this singular female character throughout 
each of her days within a 36 hour to 48 hour period. I think she's just such a fascinating and interesting director. And at the time when I was introduced to the film initially, I I was very frustrated watching the movie, but then afterwards I couldn't help but think of 10,000 plus topics that I wanted to talk about or, or <laughs> uh, that sounds hyperbolic, but it, it just, it conjures so many no, no. topics for discussion. And I, it, I just can't wait to talk to you about this movie. I think it's the second time and having watched it the second time, I, I just love every, the intertextuality that's happening within it. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Um, I, uh, I had very much of a similar thing, although, uh, weirdly enough, I didn't, I, Chantal Ackerman was actually never really brought up in my brief period in uh, film school, although that is when I did discover her. That was my first uh, and so far only full year of college where um, I was just sort of I was just sort of enamored by cinema in a way that I had never been before. And so I was seeking out all these really outsider niche things, uh, as well as a lot of the bigger stuff that I was unfamiliar with. And one thing that I was very, uh, I was very prone to do was to go on the website Letterboxd, which is uh, mm-hmm. where uh, reviews are written by me all the time. And they have this big list of like the top 250 highest ranked movies. And there were a lot of movies that I'd heard of, but a lot that I had no idea what they were. And I remember uh, scrolling through that list and I I kept seeing this one poster of a woman sitting at a table looking just utterly uh, uh, just completely apathetic to the world mm. but not by choice mm-hmm. like it was it was almost as if uh, the care was just sort of beaten out of her and I was like oh what's that and it turns out oh wow it's got a really long title mm. and for the longest time, it was just this daunting thing, you know, because if we haven't uh, said specifically, this movie is three hours and 21 minutes long. Uh, our our second longest movie we've done on the extra milestone, and that's only by six minutes, and that's to seven samurai. So that's really saying something. Um, and uh, obviously, I was like, oh, wow, I have to I have to really be in the right mindset. And so the entire first semester passed and all, I did all my finals and everything. And then. The morning after I took my last final, for whatever reason, I woke up really early and all of my roommates had left already. And I was like, you know what? This feels right. And so I just threw it on, uh, on my, uh, like on my, just my laptop, I think, uh, and just utter silence watching this three hour story unfold. And it was a really indelible experience. It immediately became one of my favorite movies. And I had actually, I had seen some of uh, Chantal Ackerman's earlier movies before that because they were shorter and uh, easier to digest. And so I, uh, I feel like that definitely helped to know. Um, have you seen any of her earlier shorts by chance? So I have to be a bit of an apologist here in terms of my <laughs> uh, cinema knowledge. I have not, unfortunately, seen more of Chantal Ackerman's work. It's, you know, in the in in the ether that exists of so many movies that we all have to watch at some point. I know that she is a filmmaker <laughs> that I need to invest more in. However, I do feel that the fact that I have seen Jean Dielman, which is one of her most influential works, one of her most discussed works, one of her most analyzed works, um, I at least feel comfortable knowing that I have seen that twice <laughs> compared to so many people who either have yet to see it or 
cannot devote the time for whatever reason or don't see a lot of value in devoting that time. Um, but yes, I, I need to devote more time to Chantal Ackerman's filmography. That's a major blind spot that I have and one that I admit freely. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think uh, I'm, I'm honestly kind of jealous that you get to sort of experience it for the first time. There's something... Uh, there's something about like when discovering a filmmaker or like diving into their work for the first time, sometimes it's not the worst idea to start with like the biggest one or the best one, you know? And I think, uh, I think Chantal Ackerman is definitely one of them. Uh, this one is as good a place to start as any. And of course we're going to get into it, uh, in depth here. Um, but yeah, it really is. It's her best work. It's her biggest work. Um, and I think if, even if it seems uh, like like it won't be your thing, there's a very good chance that it will. Uh, that it'll just sort of that it'll just sort of reel you in, uh, Julia, as you mentioned, was your, sort of your experience watching it for the first time. Uh, it's it's really really fantastic. Um, there's a huge collection of her work on the Criterion Channel at the moment um, that might expire here in a few months but as this uh, but by when this releases uh there's a whole treasure trove on there so i highly recommend that um and they're also a lot of them are available elsewhere as well but julia what do you say we really get into the movie itself i'm ready let's go for it cool okay so i am i'm i'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit uh why don't you let us know in a couple of sentences which i know isn't isn't gonna be the easiest thing ever uh but what's sort of like a synopsis of this movie, like what it is? What, what's the deal with Jean Dielman, so to speak? Well, well, Jean Dielman, it's, as we've discussed, it's directed and written by Chantal Ackerman. It was captured by a predominantly female crew, mostly female crew, if not 100%. And it follows mm-hmm. our title character, Jean Dielman, who is played by Delphine Serig. And it's about mm-hmm. a... As per IMDb's logline, it's about a lonely widowed housewife who does her daily chores and takes care of her apartment where she and her teenage son, Sylvain, live together. And every once in a while, she quote unquote turns the occasional trick, which we now know in terms of its uh, translation and from layman's terms is you know, doing some sex work and Mm -hmm. something happens halfway through this 36 hour to 48 hour period that we're observing her habits where she kind of begins to almost lose control of this patterned life of this very scheduled life that she has been living. Yeah. That's, that's really, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, now it is set, it is broken up into three segments, uh, as you mentioned. It's three days in her life. Uh, and it's really impressive the way that this movie is able to uh, capture time and sort of how how it sort of passes really slowly for this person. Um, it is a lot of long takes in this movie, a lot of really, uh, for lack of a better word, tedious things going on uh among the most famous of sequences is a scene where some potatoes are peeled in real time which is riveting in the moment uh uh, my personal favorite is when the veal cutlets are breaded um julia i wanted to ask what is um what do you think it is about uh the editing or perhaps the framing or the, the wonderful, wonderful acting by Delphine Seyrig, uh, that makes it such, 
such an engrossing uh, sort of time capsule in various senses of the word like what is it that makes this so engaging i think it's really fascinating for me at least how insular everything feels there isn't a lot of outside exposure it's very within it's within the frame of the this domestic life that jean dealman is living and it's with her the entire time so framing this widowed woman this woman who is living a very strict scheduled domestic life as a caregiver to her son as a woman trying to survive by finding creative ways whether it's you know those quote-unquote turning tricks doing sex work um it's it's very fascinating to have a character with whom we align with where there is that intertextuality, where that is that sense of understanding, but it's a very ethnographic understanding of simple observation from the audience's perspective. We don't really get into Jean Dielman's headspace a whole lot. We don't really peel back the layers of this woman, this character that often, because there is, I think, a very fascinating reading that we could go into of this woman in a post-World War II era in Western Europe. And I feel like it's a very fascinating, there's a fascinating reading that we can go into, as I said before, of a woman who's simply trying to find her path in this post-World War II era, as well as a woman who has dominance over the control of her home of herself, of her child in some semblance in a few ways, mm-hmm. at least under the roof of, of her household. Um, I, I just find that ethnographic kind of observation that we get into that Chantal Ackerman presents in her direction. That's very, I think some people might think it's a bit stagnated. I find it very engrossing based upon it's um, the, the, the lack of dramatization that there is a lot happens in these moments, whether it's Jean peeling potatoes, Jean cooking <laughs> dinner, going to the post office, getting her son's shoes fixed, what have you. I, I just find it all so fascinating to be observing a woman in this specific time period, in this specific part of the country, where she's experiencing something and going about her day and then having her schedule or her patterns interrupted by this lack of control that we will get into later. Um, I, I, I just find the the way that this experience is confronted from Chantal Ackerman's writing and from her direction very powerful in a very subtle way, and I find the approach very fascinating. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There is there's something to uh the first act of this movie the first day uh which is like 45 50 minutes long um where we see her doing all these things at once like uh like she's making dinner and uh just doing these little chores around the house and then at one point a guy shows up they go into a room smash cut to like sometime later the lighting has changed they walk out of the room we understand okay they just they just had sex and he gives her money and that's uh that's what's going on there and there is this sort of there's this expertise i think is the word there's this deftness that you can tell uh that she's really that she's really sort of figured out uh how to juggle all of these things at once and 
to the point where it's like it's it's kind of it's it's admirable from a certain perspective like wow you're really you're really uh taking care of things really nicely she really does have command and uh indeed i watched this uh on the criterion blu-ray that i had there was they had an interview on a french television show i can't remember the name off the top of my head but it was it was chantal ackerman and delphine sirig and they were they were asked to sort of describe the movie and how they read it and what they said was uh, this is, this is a woman who uh, is a widow. Um, Her husband has died. We never get a cause of death, which is curious considering some later events in the movie. And uh, she doesn't, the, the way that they phrase it is that she doesn't need a man to fulfill her role in life um, to be sort of the one who keeps everything in order and stuff. And we see that it is, it's, it's hard work. It's a lot of uh, really tedious stuff. And that's reflected in the editing and the long takes. Um, But what we see time and time again is in spite of uh, how, how difficult uh, and how just how sort of uh, how devoted she needs to be to, uh, to be an effective caretaker, so to speak for all of that effort. It's, almost never acknowledged if at all uh to the point where i don't i I don't know if you were if you were looking for this does she smile at all throughout the whole movie i couldn't tell i think she smiles whenever she goes to shops or anything but i Mm. think that the idea that she might be doing this for other people or for her son or what have you i think it's very clear that she's doing this for herself and Mm -hmm. this like you know this kind of retrograde idea of like women should smile doing what they what they (laughs) normally do is is uh is uh, a bit uh um to use the word again it's a bit retrograde it's a bit old-fashioned um but very clearly and very i think within i think the the middle of the film She's very clear with her son that she wanted to be a mother. She wanted to have a child. She wanted to get out of her aunt's home where she was living. She wanted to live a life and have some nice things, be able to live on her own, be able to experience life without being encumbered by other people and have some semblance of control. And so this idea that she might be doing it for other people and this idea that you know, what she's doing is all thankless. I mean, being a mother, being a woman, a lot of the things, especially in the 1970s and the latter half of the 60s, during that time period where there was so much upheaval and so much change, at least in America, I can't speak for Western Europe, but, you know, the role of the roles that, that traditional gen, in terms of our gen, in terms of gender roles, the roles that women follow are thankless jobs and it is that of a caregiver it is that of a chef it is that of an errand runner it is x y and z it is nurse it it is maid it is all of these other things that we see exhibited from jean dealman not all of them but most of them and to you know say that you know she doesn't smile through it or it's a thankless job i mean that's kind of part and parcel to being a woman. And I can only assume that that is part of the world that a woman lives in, in Western Europe, in post-World War II Europe. One, uh, something else that they mentioned in that interview I mentioned earlier was that um, there has, there's never really been a movie like this before uh, 1975. 
Um, there might have been like some that kind of maybe touched on it, but not to this degree. And what they said was so inspiring about it, uh, especially to Delphine Seyrig getting to play this role, was that this is what life is like for so many millions of women across the world. Um, and that it's not, it's just, it just wasn't a character that you saw delved into uh in a lot of movies a lot of times uh like the wife for lack of a better phrase uh is just sort of a supporting character to the male lead uh in this movie there is no male lead obviously there's no husband to speak of uh this is just showing us what that life is actually like complete with all the tediousness obviously i've in reading some reviews on letterboxd of this movie i found a lot of them uh and not how should I say this? Not unrightfully so, but I think they're kind of missing the point saying that it's too tedious, that it's too boring to latch onto and and therefore it fails. And I think they're sort of missing the point that, yes, that's kind of how it is. You know, it's not uh, it's not a real exciting moment to moment existence. It's it's just it takes time. It takes effort. It takes dedication and uh, I think the way that this movie just lets us see all of it, obviously it's, it's condensed somewhat, but it's really striving to give us that experience of what it's like to be in that house day after day when no one else is there. And I think that's, uh, that's really something really impeccable about the movie. Now, Julia, you mentioned that the first time you watched it, you were, I, I believe the word was frustrated by it. I was curious how, uh, how, if at all, was the experience different uh, this time? And how did you like, like, what was your, what was your uh, fresher view on sort of the pacing of the movie? Well, I think the difference is kind of knowing what the last act brings and knowing what the apex of this film is with that loss of control that Jean starts to experience and that physically we see that flustered feeling everything within her just in the tiniest details from her hair even her son recognizes it to just the way Mm -hmm. that she feels disorganized and discontented with how she's going about her regularly scheduled programming if you will or just (laughs) the way that she goes about her habitual day-to-day life I think that that made the difference for me. The first time that I watched it, I had no idea what I was in for. And it wasn't until those last 15 to 20 minutes when it finally dawned on me, oh, that was the point. That is what I was missing and where it all contextualized. And then I think what also helped was having a group of people to discuss that with and to delve into all of this experience that we have borne witness to, it really created an opportunity to peel the layers away from the potato, if you will, and, and get into the center <laughs> and to cut up all these pieces and, and to really get into the nitty gritty of what they all meant and what we had seen previously, what that meant, that sense of control, that sense of schedule and control and alignment within life and that purposefulness that was created for this woman that she created herself. And then in the latter half of the film, seeing this automatic change, seeing the sudden loss of control and how this woman tries to cope with it and and tries to change it. And then within the last 20 to 15 minutes, how she takes control back in an Mm -hmm. almost incredibly dramatic way 
the exact antithesis of what we had seen for the last about three hours of the film. Yeah. I think no, having that knowledge going into it a second time made me pay attention to things a little bit more, made me appreciate things a little bit more than I didn't the first time. However, understanding that frustration that I had the first time and then knowing the payoff, having those discussions afterwards, and then going into a second viewing a few years later, it was all still worth it at the end of the three hour, three, three, almost three and a half hour runtime. It was all still worth it. So I think this whole idea that, you know, as some of your letterbox uh, fellow cohorts were saying <laughs> that it, it it's not worth it. There isn't a payoff. I, I think there's tremendous payoff in dedicating yourself to bearing witness to this experience that is incredibly tedious and it's not dramatic and it doesn't have the swelling music. It doesn't have dramatic glances. It doesn't really have a lot of complicated cinematography or a lot of complicated movements, whether it's performers or technical movements or what have you. It is very stark and it's very honest and very real and it confronts the whole nature of what we determine as either entertainment, what we determine as character study, or what we determine as a voyeuristic view into the life of someone else that we do not know. I think that one of the best attributes that film and television have, and this has been discussed a lot, and it's it's a very broad statement, but it gives us the opportunity to create empathy or to have empathy for another person. And when we bear witness to a person who just goes about their day-to-day just like the rest of us, it really creates a, a sense of understanding that, oh, my story, this experience is just as, if not more relevant, because I'm seeing it portrayed on screen. So many, so many wonderful points. It's I, I just watched this movie again this morning, and you're making me want to go rewatch it all over again. It's it's that good. Um, I think sort of a follow up question, uh, and it's and it's probably a similar answer, but I'm just curious because um, I know that I know for me when it came to rewatching this, uh, I wanted to make sure like okay, I got to sort of I got to put myself in the right mindset for this. Um, it's a movie that really uh, demands and perhaps even commands your attention very successfully. Uh, and so I made sure like, all right, I want to have no distractions. I want it to be totally quiet. I was wondering, did you, was there any sort of uh, uh, what's word I'm looking for? Was there any sort of like routine or like precautions even uh, that you took to, to make sure that uh, you would get the full experience this time? Or was it just, did it just come naturally? I won't lie. I did take a day off of work (laughs) and and I had already planned on doing that. I I had already planned on doing that prior to watching Gene Dealman, but knowing that I had this time set aside where I could really devote myself to a task or to a viewing experience where I could really give myself wholly over to uh, bearing witness to this narrative. I think that that really set it up perfectly for me. And also the preconceived, not the preconceived, but the knowledge that I had going into the film of knowing what was required of me in mm-hmm. order to watch this film. You know, I think three years ago when I watched it, I was in a classroom. I watched the first half, then took a break, and then we watched the second half. And Ooh. it was a lot of early 20-somethings on their phones. And, oh, you know, we were all very frustrating until we realized, you know, what it was that we had dedicated our time to and and what we learned from devoting ourselves to, to that time, if, you know, in increments, depending on what distractions we brought upon ourselves. 
but it it does require I won't lie it does require something of you and I think that mm-hmm. you know that's the respect that is earned for filmmakers like Chantal Ackerman she's doing something here that was rare and that wasn't popular at all and I think that it really behooves those of us who you know aspire to this certain love or aspiration to filmmakers and who really appreciate the work that they have done to, you know, give over three hours and 20 minutes of our lives to bear witness to this experience. Because if we're being honest as well, although this film is three hours and 22 minutes, it encompasses roughly 36 to 48 hours of Jean Mm -hmm. Dillman's life. And I think that that's an important detail to take into account. Yeah, it does. Uh, it does ask a lot of you, as you said, but I think it's it's worth it ten thousand thousand times over. Uh, you'll really you'll get a lot out of this movie if 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 you really give it the time of day. Um, and I'm glad that I'm glad that we both have taken the journey to do so. And I hope that a lot of our listeners have too. Um, I think uh, one thing one thing I wanted to bring up is this is a detail that I had sort of I had sort of forgotten because it's actually kind of brushed over a little bit. Uh, you briefly sort of alluded to it earlier, but we find out at the end of the first day, the first segment, as uh, as Jean is putting her son bed, uh, that she lived through the Holocaust. Like she was a young child when that all went down, um, and so that sort of that just adds this whole other layer to uh, the way that she has sort of learned to to cope with things. I would say. Um, and to push on, I guess, is is the way I kind of read it. I was wondering uh, whether that detail specifically or others, um, was there anything, because we all have this experience, was there anything that you didn't necessarily get the first time besides knowing how the story would play out that you, uh, that you were able to pick up on this time? Definitely. And I'm really glad that you brought up, you know, this idea that she, you know, was in Western Europe. Uh, during World War II, around the time that the Holocaust was happening, I believe that another detail that she mentions when she's talking to Sylvia and her son is that both of her parents died when mm-hmm. she was really young. And I think that, you know, that and she ended up living with her aunts who, you know, kind of put her in these different directions in terms of what kind of a man that she should marry. And at first, the man that she does marry, Sylvia's father, He's at first rich and relatively successful. He'll treat her well. She doesn't necessarily love him, but she knows that he will give her a good life. And then I think it's something about he loses his job or his job goes under something to that affiliation. And then her aunts are saying, oh, he's ugly. He won't be able to give you everything that you want. And she marries him regardless. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, you know... It's so difficult for you and I to put ourselves in that mindset of this kind of survival mode of you have endured this incredible, you have lived through history. I mean, now you and I are kind of living through history, (laughs) but that's a, it's a completely separate sort of global event that's happening. But to have lived through history at that such of a degree to, for her to lose her parents and to almost become this sort of, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? This, this, um, I don't want to say cocoon, but she, she holds in her emotions and not to the point where it doesn't feel like she can express them. She obviously can. 
It's very yeah. clear that she can. Mm. It's this decision that she makes of having endured so much and knowing that her approach to life should be cautious, should have routine, should have some semblance of normalcy, because I'm sure from that character's narrative and from that backstory, that was taken from her. That sense of normalcy, that sense of what is quote unquote normal for, for that time period, for, for that, for a family at that point. Um, and I think that it really, that tidbit of backstory that we get about Jean really speaks a lot to her approach for her day to day. There aren't a lot of surprises. It's routine. It's controlled. And she's the one in charge of it. And I think that that's a very important aspect of her narrative to keep in mind. Yeah, I love what you said about uh, how everything is routine and controlled, because that's what we we very much get the sense of that on the first day and for a lot of the second day, which I think makes it that much more powerful during the second segment, the second day, uh, sort of like halfway, maybe a little over halfway through it. We see little things just start to not go right. And you don't notice it if you're not paying attention, which is why it's so important to be in the right mindset. But it can be anything as simple as like forgetting to uh, turn a light off after she leaves a room. Like that is, that's kind of the first thing that I picked up on specifically. Uh, and then of course, letting the potatoes cook too long, which leads to the famous scene we've alluded to many times. It's really it's it shows an incredible attention to detail. And we haven't really we haven't touched on specifically the apartment that most of this movie takes place in really great sense of place. You really you really get the sense of what it's like to live just in this really small, confined place day after day. You get to know the way the furniture works, the way uh, all the appliances are and everything. There's so many little details like there's this flickering blue light outside of their dining room that just lends a really great sense of sort of urban claustrophobia to the entire thing um i think it's i think it's really fantastic what is what what was um i mentioned the light not being turned off any earlier do you think what do you think is the key to that sequence of everything starting to go wrong do you think it's just sort of like this uh like a matter of how should i say this do you think it was only a matter of time before something just sort of started to uh not go perfectly or do you think there was a specific uh, moment that set it off i'm very curious well i think it's pretty clear in terms of the narrative that ackerman lays out for us that you know we have this man come into her apartment it's a scheduled um appointment i would say and we see them go into the room and then suddenly everything changes is almost like a snap and everything mm -hmm. changes when it cuts back to the latter half of that day. And we can tell something is off because Jean Dillman's hair is askew. Her, her son even comments on it. She begins to develop these pattern, these lack of patterns, honestly, where everything seems a bit disoriented. And it, it's at that moment, I think that, you know, at least for me in terms of, the latter half of my first reading of the film and then watching it back a second time and it's driven home, especially towards the end mm -hmm. that it's, it's very clear that part of this lack of control has to do with her sexual experience that she has with this man and yeah. that she loses control of her in the, whether it's her inhibitions or, or whether you just want to go straight to the point of it and just say that she experiences an orgasm with it, which is something that, you know, you cannot really control if you can. Good on mm -hmm. you. Amazing. <laughs> but, but, 
but it, it's this it's this thing where it, it it was very clear to me that it's just like this lack of control that she had over her body over her inhibitions over her ability to express herself it lent itself to it, it affects everything else around her the environment coming out of that state uh it it was just very fascinating and i think that that you know, the coin is flipped on its other side and we see this completely and it doesn't seem that monumental. You know, if you're, if you're not devoting yourself to to that time that is required, it doesn't seem that big. But if, you know, like you and I, we've seen this, this is our second, possibly third time watching the film. It's almost catastrophic for this woman that she cannot get a grasp on how she was able to conduct her life previously. I think it's just such a fascinating approach that Ackerman does to it. It's really just deft in the way that it's able to communicate how one, just one little thing done a little bit differently, one small wrench thrown into the gears of this well-oiled machine is really all it takes. Uh, and it's uh, it's so subtle. Like if you watch these scenes just by themselves, you wouldn't think anything was wrong, but it's because it's taken the time to establish that se- uh, that sense of normalcy, that routine, that it's so effective. Uh, and I think it's not... I, I think there's also a, a very particular significance to uh, what you just brought up, which is uh, the sex work aspect of her life. Uh, sex workers are sort of have historically been viewed as uh, less important and like not uh, not a fulfilling career, not a not a good career to follow. Uh, unappreciated is the word. Unrespected is is uh, another word. And so I think there's a very clear. Uh, there, it, it's it's clear to see why that choice was made. How in multiple aspects of her life, um, is just part is just a part of the world, a part of a very specific experience that hasn't been seen uh, a on film and just in real life isn't touched on very often. Uh, Julia, we've talked a lot about this movie. I think we got to a lot of good points. Is I was wondering, is there is there anything that we haven't mentioned thus far? Uh, that you wanted to touch on about the movie, and if not, uh, what is, what what's some of your sort of your final statement, so to speak? Well, if you are ready to get into it, I would really love to talk about the last twenty minutes of the film. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so this is so Let's we've been we've been a little coy about uh, sort of the third act of this movie. Uh, we're gonna we're we're just gonna take a little bit of time. So if you haven't seen the movie, uh, by all means, it's, I, I know it's a commitment, but you you will thank us later. Um, and uh, and yeah, let let's get going. So Julia, tell us what what is the goodness that is the mysterious conclusion to this movie. Well, in the final 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so of uh, the film, Chantal Ackerman actually places us in Jean Dielman's bedroom where mm-hmm. she, which we haven't seen yet. her. Right. Right. Not unless she's sleeping in there, but we haven't seen it in from this perspective of her going about her sex work. And this right. is the first time within the last, within the film's last 20, 25 minutes between 15, 25 minutes where we actually mm-hmm. get to see Jean Dielman in this different part of her life. We've seen the towel laid out on top of the covers. We've seen her cleaning it off and dusting it off as much as she could, opening up windows and so on and so forth. But this is the time where we're actually watching her do the work Mm -hmm. that she has to do in order to sustain a living for herself and for her son. And it's very fascinating that we do not see 
the face of this man at all in these last few moments until mm-hmm. the last couple of minutes of the film. Yeah. And yeah, I hadn't thought fact, of that. Yeah. And in fact, we actually only see Jean's face um, almost face on and we see her experience what we would assume given what we understand from the film's apex and from the film's without use of better word climax <laughs> this film <laughs> yeah, yeah. we we get we see her um go through another ex- a sexual experience where one of her male clients brings her to orgasm and we see her stretching out her hands we see her facial expressions and the thing that really got me is that I watched her try to work against it hmm. and not to to express herself and and allow that release or, or what have you. And it it's such a fascinating part of the film and it it renders a really great payoff. I, I really believe it does because we see her not sustaining control for about a little bit less than a minute, maybe 30 to 45 seconds. Yeah. And after that time, we see Jean putting herself together. We see her male client sitting on the bed. And before this happens, she opens up a <laughs> gift from her. I believe it's either her sister-in-law or I'm going to assume it's her sister. F- yeah, Ferdin- it, Ferdin- it's, it's, it's yeah. just her sister who lives in uh, Canada. Right, Canada. And um, she's opening up this gift and she decides to move the gift under the bed and put the scissors on the dresser. And it's at this point when Jean is putting, you know, trying to sustain again or regain some some semblance of control, putting her her clothes back together, fixing her hair, fixing herself and making her look controlled and put together. And this man is just sitting, lazing about on her bed and she mm-hmm. decides to she looks in the mirror sees the man in the reflection, picks up the scissors, and it's a be- oh, it's such a perfectly orchestrated shot because the camera oh, does yes. not shift at all. But we see the reflection of Jean taking the scissors and stabbing the man in the chest. Mm-hmm. And it's not a great, it, it's it's not a, uh, not great, but it's not a, 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 a huge reaction. It, it's, it, it, there's no swelling music. There's nothing. It's an action. It has a result, and then by the end of the film, we see Jean just sitting at her dining room table, mm-hmm. some of her clothes stained with blood, and it yeah. looks like for the first time, she it's a mix of apathy, it's a mix of relief, I think. Uh, it's I could look at those last few minutes of oh, just gosh. Jean sitting in her time, ta- in her dining room with no lights on at all and just figure trying to figure out what is going through her head it's so fascinating it's a really brilliant (laughs) ending it's so good it's the hairs on my arm are standing up as you're describing it yeah Yeah, it it might it might be the best shot in the entire movie and that's really saying something just Mm -hmm. just that it gives us nothing is so Oh, no, no other movie does so that. much. Yeah. And yet it gives you so much to try to parse through and to piece together and to figure out. It's, I think it's the, just the brilliance of Ackerman's direction. Yeah. It's, it's one of, 
it, it it's one of the greatest final shots of any movie period and i think and this movie as a whole is one of the greatest ever i think it's as i mentioned earlier it launched way up on my all-time favorites list uh with this rewatch and yeah when it, as for that uh the conclusion that we're mentioning it's just so just it especially knowing it <laughs> is really makes it all the more suspenseful to watch and just how understated it is and everything it's just the perfect conclusion to this movie and it is not to not to say that the earlier three some odd hours uh wasn't worth it but this is just the cherry on top that makes it all uh that just makes it all click together and it's brilliant i couldn't have, i could not have described it any better myself um julia we've talked a lot about jean dealman i think we had again we had some uh a lot of wonderful things you brought up now uh when we talked about all quiet on the western front at the end of that episode i asked uh if you had any recommendations for uh for similar movies that can maybe serve as uh something of a companion piece i was curious i know i know it's a really unique movie but uh did you happen to have uh, a similar movie that maybe came to mind as you were watching uh jean dealman or as we were talking about it i actually do so my recommendation to go along with jean dealman is actually portrait of a lady on fire Ooh, uh, that's also good. another uh, also another French language piece, but it also too, I think, uh, takes a lot of a similar approach from Jean Dielman in terms of its kind of voyeuristic look at these characters and having this very interesting character study between these three in, in Portrait of a Lady on Fire's case, uh, these three women that Celine Sciamma just captures so, so beautifully and with such empathy as well, but also with that kind of sense, that ethnographic sense of just bearing witness to their experiences and following through their narratives as individual women. I think that, you know, I was on the podcast a few months ago when Emily and I discussed our own experiences watching the film in the theater and how we were both so, so affected by a film that is really quite understated and is very thoughtful and very serious about how it approaches the women that it is, the stories of these women that it is conveying. I think it's a really beautiful film. I think it, it too is one that doesn't say a lot at face value, but -hmm. gives you a lot to peel through and and to discuss afterwards it offers a lot of opportunity for discussion and i think just in that sense in terms of its subtlety and the nuance with which it captures women's experiences in a very different time period i think that it would be a really great companion piece to jean dealman yeah i love that you brought that up i i thought of that as well that that was my choice um but yeah, I thought of that, especially when it comes to uh, the way that it sort of shows us a life, uh, an experience that does not get uh, shown to us a lot in uh, in cinema and otherwise. Um, so I think that's a really fantastic uh, recommendation. My recommendation is also a relatively recent movie. It came out earlier this year. Uh, one of the last movies I saw in theater, ac- actually. Uh, Julia, did you see Kitty Green's The Assistant? Yes, I did. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's such a great <laughs> recommendation. That's so good. I completely I th- agree. I would love to hear why. 
I thought of that almost immediately when we see in that first act of the movie um, how how Gene is just going around doing meticulously accomplishing all these tasks and then and but while no one is really there to see it and uh and the way that it just goes just unheated uh or not unheated uh uh just unappreciated again is the word that i use um Although to a much greater extent in the assistant, uh, which if, if you didn't see, it's Julia Garner, who you probably know from Ozark, uh, plays an assistant in like sort of this sort of this office firm. Uh, I believe it's for some sort of a some sort of a movie studio, and it's like a Weinstein esque environment. Yes, in in more ways than one, uh, which is which is makes it kind of a horror movie, honestly. Um, and uh, yeah, we see that she's the one who has to show up at the crack of dawn, before the crack of dawn, uh, and just make sure that everything is good to go, so that everyone else who works there can show up and not and have as few problems as possible. And then she's also the last one to leave, and she is just working harder than anyone else in that building. And th- and there are revelations in the plot that I won't give away because it's. Uh, really just really striking the way that it slowly comes about uh and it's it's a haunting movie it's it's terrifying at its but it's also incredibly cathartic at times uh and if you've ever felt unappreciated at your job and i say if in jest because i feel like that's an experience that we can all relate to on one level or another i think this is the movie for you so Highly recommend The Assistant. Uh, that and uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I believe, are both available on Hulu and they're on a variety of other streaming services as well. I think that's just that either of these movies would go wonderfully uh, with Gene Dealman. Julia, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The Extra Milestone. I had a great time as always. Oh, I had a great time, Sam. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about this film. Yes, I I cannot wait. Uh, You're one of my favorite guests, as I mentioned earlier. I can't wait until our next meeting. Uh, I want to ask real fast, uh, where can the listeners find uh, some of your some of your past work on the on the interwebs on the journalism interwebs? Sure, you can find my previously published work, of course, at Cinemaholics. And you can also find some of my bylines at Film School Rejects, Thrillist, The Playlist, Polygon, and a few more. Awesome. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm uh, on Cinemaholics as always, and on Letterbox too, and I'm back on Twitter. I'm at Noland Sam uh, because at Sam Noland was taken by someone who doesn't use the handle, and it just just drives me nuts. That Turns your that. gears. It, it really just twists does. your gears, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does, and in the wrong direction too. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I think that is just about everything we've got and so we will sign off from uh uh, uh 23 kaidu kames i'm sam noland from the internet in my kitchen peeling some potatoes <laughs> i'm julia tady <laughs> and we'll see you on the next extra milestone bye guys <laughs>